know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation, episode 138. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, and today I have Dr. Rosario Sanchez. She's a PhD in nursing, and actually, she's at the College of Nursing at the University of Toledo. She does human trafficking-focused research, And she comes by way of the New Jersey Coalition of Human Trafficking, which she's still a member of. She's also involved with our Lucas County Human Trafficking Coalition and is a member of our Lucas County Trafficking Informed Coalition. She's been involved in trafficking work for a number of years, and she is going to talk to us from a healthcare perspective, being a nurse, about some of her work and particularly her maze. And we're going to learn a lot more about that. So thank you for joining me today, Rosario. I'm so glad that you could make it. Dr. Sanchez, I should say. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Williamson, for having me uh, talk about my dissertation and the importance that it is, especially for healthcare providers, that they are aware of what happens when a victim of human trafficking uh, decides to leave. So what happens? Tell us about, you came up with this thing called the maze and elopement and tell us why are you calling this elopement and that sort of thing right um so a lot in the in the literature they talk about the exiting process or the leaving process but to me was it didn't capture what exactly what happens with the survivors or victims of human trafficking and elopement has a connotation like it's a sudden um it usually involves a hurry flight Uh, escaping from somewhere or leaving without permission. And knowing a little bit about human trafficking and writing about it since 2014, elopement came to mind. And I said, it's it's not actually just saying I'm going to exit today. It is a process that they have to uh, go through. And that is what Looking at the literature, I looked at there was a lot of uh, talk about the risk factors, how do they get involved, the fact that they are coming to healthcare providers, but we are not identifying, but not much was written about the exiting part of it. And what I read about it was that it was a linear process, like people tried to fit the victim's lived experience in a linear kind of way. Mm-hmm. And And I said, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, To me, it didn't make any sense. And so that's where I went with my research. I wanted to look at the elopement process of adult survivors of sex trafficking during adolescence. Because I know that if we get to capture their traumatic experience during their adolescence, then we could actually prevent a lot of the things that are happening to them and we could develop interventions because we all know that as human trafficking survivors do not elope early they elope very late and so in a goal was what can we do to help them what how can research could help understand what was going on with them 
Wow, that's very cool. So what? So you came up with this maze. Can you explain what that is? So the maze was developed after many, many hours of conceptual mapping with my mentor, Dr. Patricia Speck. And um, we kept coming out with a linear model. And, and I think we at one point we had a triangle. Uh, then we had a circle. And then one day we were both exhausted looking at the themes and exploring the themes. And she, and she just said, it looks like a maze. And that was it. And we were both like, oh, my God, this is a maze. And when I started plugging in the themes that were coming from the lived experience, I could actually see that the, the maze was blocked by different barriers. So what I call the barriers of elopement, it was blocked at the individual, at the interpersonal, and what I call the professional silos. That, that is something that came through across. And every time that they met the barrier, guess where they went back to the DMSD life. Hmm. In addition to that, I had to explore their growth and development. So one of the things that we know as uh, children, and, and you know, I tend to argue with a lot of people, adolescents are children. Stop it. They're children. A lot of them seek safety. And that is one of the things that one of the things that came through, that they were seeking safety based on their developmental age and based on their victim needs, what they needed at that point. So I developed a maze and it provides a way to understand better their journey and to understand that if they are sometimes they they meet different kind of barriers, whether it's interpersonal and individual, whether it's professional side, that means that a victim could come in, be uh, not have uh, any support at home, uh, have come from an abusive family. They bring them down to the ER, have a nurse who comes in and ignores every signs that she's seeing and not asking the question of the social worker, not digging in deeply. So now you have two barriers and she's, who she's going to trust. She's going to go back into the same life mm-hmm. because it's, it's, that's, the, that's all they know. And the other thing that I found, which was incidental, and it was great because my survivors were so amazing when they spoke to me, they talked about the entry, the pre-entry. And that is something that we really, really need to hone in because they all had a pre-entry like the ACEs. They all did, whether it was a dysfunctional family or whether it was an economic necessity. Like one of my survivors lost her mother at 16. She had to fend for herself. She didn't have nobody. Mm. And addiction was another part of it. Mm -hmm. So when they had this, they they perceived themselves, this is all I know. This is the life that I have. There's nothing better out there. The pre-entry kind of factors leads them to this maze. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing that they can conclude is all these factors previously in my life kind of lead me into this uh, experience. And then as I go through the maze, um, I mean, is that, are you saying that we, as people doing assessments and people who are supposed to understand, we need to understand the different ways that people can go through a maze? Well, how we have, what we could understand is if we could understand, like, for example, at the individual level, some of them experience shame and guilt 
shame and guilt are very strong in a human trafficking uh, victim. So how do we not make them feel more shameless? You know, um, sometimes as healthcare providers, we tend sometimes to label our patients. And it's not unlikely, like if we have somebody coming back multiple times, I have witnessed that as a nurse, we call them frequent flyers. Imagine this is an adolescent coming in. You're calling them a frequent flyer. They're not going to disclose to you anything. They feel worthless in their inner self. They feel worthless and helpless. They And there is this intrinsic, um, I call it a very intrinsic factor that they develop. I was my trafficker. Some of them developed, developed it because they, that's all they knew. This is all that, this is, this is what I do. And this is my work. And that's all I knew. Others develop it somewhere where they looked at, well, if my trafficker could make money, I could make money. So I could do it. And I know that I could get a lot of things out of men. Um, so it all depends how they are coming through and they are developing this uh, sort of like, I, I call it a very um, negative um, label that they place on themselves. And um, addiction was another one, whether it was because they did it for coping mechanisms or that they were introduced to um, to substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you the self-medicated from the trauma? Right. Things like right. that. So then if they met this, this individual barriers, then they will go back into the MSD. They wouldn't see a way out. They wouldn't see anything out, out there. At the interpersonal they spoke about a lack of family support. They spoke about interpartner violence. They were beat. They were beaten up by their traffickers, by their so-called boyfriends that were their traffickers also, mm-hmm. and also the form of coercion. Now, I have written about trauma coercive bonding and how strong that plays. Now, imagine yourself with complex trauma. You have they create an environment that they really there's no way to escape. Right? It's so dangerous. And they know and they have seen the violence on on themselves and they have seen the violence that the trafficker could produce on other victims. So the coercion is so strong that they don't even attempt. They have the thought, but then if they're met with any of the barriers, then they will not do it. And then the interpersonal professional silos that I call them, where it taught, you know, I looked at um, the lack of attention by healthcare providers, by law enforcement, the lack of trust. Why should they trust us? Why? You know, we tend to, to want them to trust us, but what are we doing to make them trust us? Sometimes our body language or the way we communicate with them says something differently about you trying to help them. And they could perceive that because they develop hypervigilance. And they develop this as a coping mechanism because they have they live in danger every day of their life. So they have this coping mechanism that they could actually pick up from you if you're lying or you're judging them in in a second. So they're not going to trust you. Uh, We label them, right? I said that before. And there's also a complete lack of support. Mm -hmm. But as much as I'm saying all of these things, we could be changes. We could do the changes for them. Mm -hmm. And we need to change our mind, how we connect with victims of human trafficking. We need to really have trauma-informed care principles. And that war has been thrown out everywhere. But do we really realize what it is? 
And what we want is we don't want to re-victimize our patients again. We don't want to do that to them. We want to acknowledge that each trauma is different. They don't fit up a, 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 a platform. They don't fit a certain way. And if we could acknowledge that and have empathy. And when I say empathy, I, I, and I want to go out there to the healthcare providers, when you say empathy, yes, you're walking alongside the patient, and that's what we want you to do, but you need to remove yourself. And that is very hard for any professional to do because we come with our own roles, with our own biases, with our own values and all of that. But if we are able to do that, then we could change the way we are going to take care of them. That's awesome. I love it because it doesn't sound like this simplistic uh, thing we're going to get involved in survivors' lives. We're going to walk beside them to recovery and healing and restoration. And but it's a lot more complex than that. You're saying there are individual uh, barriers and hit any one of those individual barriers, and that that's all she wrote for that moment. Or hit any one of those interpersonal barriers or the lack of support there. Or be engaged one time with somebody who's uncaring or just going through the motions. And that's enough for somebody who's vulnerable or experiencing shame or guilt or trauma to say, forget it, this isn't gonna work for me. And so it's so critical, Uh, you know, I just, I appreciate that you're telling us, reminding us of the complexity of just the, anything we could do or say that we're not even thinking because we're not trauma-informed that somebody had small wings of hope and they were going to try, but what we did or did not do helped close the door for them. Yeah. And that is what I call the war maze. So the war maze is really like their um, life in the MSD, right? So then the other thing that I did in this research, I asked each of the survivors, go back to that age. If I could have done, say anything to you, do anything for you, what would it be? What could I have done for you? That you would say, yes, help me, help me get out, right? And they spoke again at the individual. They spoke about the individual, interpersonal, and what they needed. So at the individual, they always spoke about spirituality. They all spoke about having a higher power. Some of my survivors spoke about reading the Bible while waiting for the next client. That really kept them, you know, wanting to get out. They spoke about acknowledging the guilt, like the guilt that they had, they had to be able to acknowledge, like putting an ad in the back page made one of the, my survivors think, what am I doing? What is going on here? And I'm feeling guilty. This is this I'm acknowledging to starting to feel guilty about the thing. A transmutation. Some of them call it a transmutation or an alchemy. And that's what we want. We want to promote alchemy for them and to help others, which was amazing to me. They didn't, they prevented a lot of young people getting into trafficking by telling them, don't go here, don't talk to this one, get away, go, go, get away. Um, at the interpersonal, they spoke about positive support. They spoke about 
having a therapist talking to them and giving them just positive support. They spoke about having positive support at home, finding somebody that loved them besides, you know, their history of being trafficked. That was important to them. And also they spoke about what they needed. We need a safe place. We need somewhere where we could feel safe because safety is one of the things that they took away from me. Comprehensive services. That's a big one that they spoke about. They said, why do you want to break me apart? I'm a whole person. But I go to one organization and that organization says, well, I could help you with A, B, and C. But C and D, you have to go somewhere else. And what happens to that survivor? That survivor has to tell her whole story to another organization so that they could get help. And they said, why can you have comprehensive services for us? Why do we have to tell every single time my story so that you could understand I'm a whole person. Yes, I do have petty crimes under me. Yes, because I was forced to do this. Why do I have to explain it to you? Why do I have to like fight with a judge to sponge my 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 um yeah. my back history? Why? Why if I am a victim of human trafficking? Why do I have to do that? And the other thing that they spoke, uh, they spoke about a positive step program. So some of the things that they say, you know, AA, they go, yes, uh, Alcohol Anonymous. Yeah, they have a 12th step program, right? That's what we need. Because I don't know who I am when I come out. You think living in this world is easy? For me, it's not. For you, it is because I'm nothing like you. I come from a different background. So I'm so excited because I know you have a 12-step journey program that really, that's healing. That's what we want them to do. We want them to heal from the trauma. Hey, I want to break into this episode for a moment. I want to remind you that survivors of sex trafficking experience trauma as a result. Trauma-informed care is something we learn so that we don't re-traumatize victims. However, trauma-informed care will not lower someone's trauma. We have survivors that need to heal inside. Most quality direct service workers connect survivors to needed services like healthcare, housing, legal services, and more. But these services, while necessary, won't address the internal trauma. Even when we connect them to trauma treatment counselors, they spend about an hour a week addressing traumas that have taken over their entire lives. They need so much more. Connecting someone to needed housing won't fix the brokenness inside. Arresting their trafficker allows them justice, but it won't heal the internal pain. Linking them to a lawyer won't take them to a place of reclaiming their freedom and experiencing genuine joy. Walking alongside survivors to provide support Nurturing, love, kindness, and to build relationship is critical. But they also need the tools to regain the power, choice, and voice internally. Healing the internal pain requires survivors to do the internal work. I've worked with and studied the issue for almost 30 years. I recently wrote a book outlining the 12 journeys that survivors need to go on to heal the trauma and to live the life they truly want to live. I'd love to train you to be a group facilitator leading survivors toward the internal healing they need. The training is the TNT Survivors Journey Group. Let me train you to facilitate these important groups and put survivors on their path to living the life they want 
and experience the freedom and joy they deserve. To learn more, go to my website, CeliaWilliamson.com, and watch the free webinar to learn more about the course. I look forward to training you and helping you help survivors to heal. And now, on with the podcast. We want them to do that so they could obtain a Lobman victory. And they had also, because they were adolescents, so how do they develop this readiness to elope, right? That's the other thing that I wanted to find out. And they had to have an awareness of trafficking. Some of them didn't know that they were trafficked. They found out through magazines or somebody told them, FBI agent told them that they were victims of human trafficking. And they went, oh, my God, they found us a safety moment. Uh, one of my survivors, her trafficker got incarcerated, and the minute he got incarcerated, she eloped. She ran away because that was the moment she found a safety moment or a safety person. So somebody that lis- really listened to them and said, okay, we're here to help you. And because they were growing up, they were maturing out of the life. And I call that adversarial growth. You know, people... Have you heard that saying that says, what does not kill you makes you stronger? Mm-hmm. That has a lot of intuitive appeal. Many of the survivors, they wanted to leave, but they, even though they didn't know how, they mature through their trauma. And even though they could not envision or describe what they hope for in a new life, and this is something important that we could do for them. We could help them have hope. So one of the things that they spoke about being tired, physically, emotionally tired, psychologically tired of the life. One of them said, I was bleeding. I was bleeding from my feet with these high heels. I got tired and I said, enough. I had enough. Some of them had a breaking down. Some, some of them had a traumatic uh, breakdown, psychotic breakdown. And, I, and she said that was enough for her. She said, that's it. I got to get out. Some of them, they had to let go of the past. Mm-hmm. They had to let go of the past and find alchemy. And that's what they spoke about, finding alchemy, finding something positive of what they were, that they could actually say, I, I could move on now. But the thing is, we have to provide them with what they need. Or otherwise, again, it's a maze. They could easily go back. And, and we got to understand the fact that some of them might go back because of the coercive environment. And I tend to um, say, you know, when you take that rescue mentality, you're going to rescue somebody. We're going to rescue this person. Take that out because you're nobody to rescue. I'm sorry. We're not rescuing. This is their, their choice. But we could actually say, look, you're making this choice. This is how you're making this choice. What can we do to help you not to make that choice? Whether it's maybe... Payment of an electricity bill. They're running short, right? Because remember, some of them come out with no schooling. Some of them come out with not even a high school diploma because they got into trafficking very early. So if we don't provide them things like that, then it's hard for them, right? They have to be able to support themselves. Yeah, it's so difficult to to truly be able to try and put yourself in someone else's shoes. When we think, when we say things like, well, you, we have a wonderful service. You have to get yourself to it. 
we're creating an insurmountable barrier sometimes. We say, well, I got there, you can. Great, you've had a car most of your life. And mm-hmm. when you didn't have one, your parents had one. And so you think, uh, you know, I'm not going to help you get to this service. You don't understand that that one thing, you don't understand how big a barrier that is. You don't understand when you go into an ER, somebody says something that is not the most caring thing. You don't know what that point was in their life that now you just took that hope away. You, we have no idea as we're helping people what the mindset is when you've been beaten down and broken and coerced and confused. And, and you're thinking with your mind, well, of course you'd want this great service, but, but you're not thinking with somebody who's experienced what you haven't experienced. I always, you know, I always talk about preparate, uh, uh, preparatory empathy where, you know, sit for a moment just mm-hmm. before you go and engage somebody, sit for a moment and just try, try. You'll never be able to do it, but just try to think where, where might this person be in their headspace, in their heart space, and then approach that person. Because otherwise you're going to approach with all of your privilege, all of your powers, all of the nice car you drove to work with, all of the heating capabilities, you can <laughs> yourself up with your nice heat in your car, all of your nice bed you got out of this morning, all of your warm boots that you put on before you went out in the cold, all of those things. And, that, and that's why you wonder why people don't. Well, why don't they take advantage of this great service? <laughs> so, I mean, I think you're reminding us just reminding us like how important, how critical everything we say and do, because this person could have little wings of hope. And are we going to help grow those wings or are we going to help destroy those wings? Right. Definitely. And that we want, we want, I know there are a lot of uh, healthcare providers out there that they have this, you know, they want to help but, uh, and exactly what you said, like you have to remove yourself because you cannot, I can never, and I would tell my survivors, I can never say, oh my God, I know what you feel. And I never say that because I would never be able to have this feeling because I would, I was never trafficked. So I tell them, I say, you are the experts. Make me understand make me understand. I humble myself as a researcher to you and I open my ears and I'm listening. And, and then one of the things that I did in my research is I did member check with all of them. Mm-hmm. All of them. I brought them back and I said, okay, did I get it? Mm-hmm. Did I did I get what you were saying? Did, did, is, is this what you were trying to tell me? Some of them say, yeah, but at this much more, because I think you need that. And it, it was great. I mean, my survivors, they were at my dissertation defense, you oh, know, awesome. because I told them, I said, you know, I want you there. Um, I allow them to have a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. I told them, listen, I, I, I'm not going to call you A3, A2, A1. <laughs> this is your choice. I said, you could choose a name and that is the name that I will report my findings. If you don't want to choose a name, then it's fine. Then I will assign you an alphanumeric name. 
Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, my God, yes. So when you read, because I told them, I said, I'm publishing my, my dissertation. I said, I'm sending you a copy as soon as it gets accepted. And they were all like, oh, yes, please, because they want to see their name. They want it's, it's sort of like a validation for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That they're helping other people. And this is their lived experience. This is what they went through. In addition to that, I also allow them to um, elicit text, show me a picture or a drawing or a writing that you might want to share with me that will give me an insight of what you were going through at that point of your life. And some of them did. They they were willing. They said, yeah, this is what I drew when I was 14. Yeah. And, and, and it was like, oh, my God, like, okay, thank you. And then that was involved in my research also. See, I think the fact that you honor their contributions um, and they know that they have a significant, important part because of their generosity, that Mm -hmm. other people will get to know a little more about their lived experience. Like that is, um, you know, a way of validating, like you said, their experience. And, you know, when you're doing member checks for people who don't know out there, that's a good a qualitative method for making sure that your research is credible. You take it back to to um, the people involved, your participants, and you ask them, "Is this exactly the experience that you described to me?" And what what they should say back to you is, "Well, yeah, duh," because it should be exactly <laughs> the experience. Or sometimes they'll do like what they did to you, done to me, and say, "Oh, you need to add this piece because you know, or whatever." But that's how you know that your research is credible. So. Rosario, um, Dr. Sanchez, we've Dr. Sanchez and Dr. <laughs> Williamson. Okay. Now, now Celia and Rosario. Um, what, so what's the future hold for Rosario? Well, the future, I, you know, I will love um, to um, continue working with the Institute. Um, and that is one of the things that I would love to do. But I am moving on to um, work with uh, victims of sex trafficking here in Toledo. And I will be in the grassroots um, because I feel professionally, like I said before, I would never be able to comprehend uh, what their victimology looked like or how what they experienced. And I got a great opportunity with Grace Haven here in Toledo to work alongside the victims of human trafficking, the children. And that is my goal. Like I know that if we intervene early enough, you don't understand the the sequela, the long-term effects that this has in their physical, in their mental, in their social, spiritual, in their whole being the long term. Some of them are dying early because of the increased stress that they go through. And we want to prevent that. We want them to ask for help. I mean, human trafficking, the big war came out in the 2000s. We should be, 2022, we should be able to be identifying them. You know, we should be able to be providing with services. We should have everything lined up for them. and we don't. So we need to figure out what is the best way. And the only way is going to the experts or what they're going through. How did the trafficker get a hold of you? 
especially when you're an adolescent, because you have to think about the adolescent part of it, where, you know, the adolescent, you know, they have benchmarks, right? They, they, they have different, different benchmarks, um, such as self-identity, uh, social autonomy, intimate relationship, abstract thinking that is hindered by the life. And then also add to that complex trauma, where now the child forgets any loving memory because of the complex trauma, because he has erased that. So you have a, so we, I want to be able to be in the grassroots and learn from them and then look at the different um, um, areas that we could actually work for them and, and build up uh, therapy uh, programs for them. And for that reason, also, I'm going back um, to school to get my mental health nurse practitioner so that I could actually look at the different therapies that are out there. One of them that is very promising and has been used with sexual abuse is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. And co- trauma-focused behavioral therapy is great because not only does it involve the child, you know, their emotions, their thoughts, and their behavior, but also it allows the caregiver, whether it could be a foster parent or the parents, or at the end, whoever is taking care of this child to understand why they're having this thought process, where the emotion is coming out, what is the behavior coming out. So that is one of the things that I am looking forward to. And, you know, just continue working. Um, I would love if, um, you know, the maze is out there. You, I mean, it's copyright to me, but it could be used in different kinds of populations. Mm-hmm. And what you could do is you could actually use the maze and, you know, for researchers out there, you could use the maze. You, you could add more things because as much as I know about, they were all females, but there is the LGBTQ. There are the males. There are the different kind of uh, human trafficking victim that is out there that might have a different barrier that we added. I didn't find it in this study, but you will be able to find it for future researchers to do that. So I, you know, I will be happy to assist anybody that wants to use the maze and and have that. And then also, I would like the maze to be incorporating human trafficking education. Because mm-hmm. if they're able to see it, I mean, especially when you see how the barrier builds up and how it sends them back, I think that it will allow the healthcare provider to say, my God. Okay. All right. I'm missing all of these things. What can I do better? Because, you know, healthcare providers, we go there because we want to help people, right? We want to be the best that we could be. And I'm a forensic nurse. So if there is any forensic nurse, know that is listening to this podcast, know that we could be the agents and leaders to improve the DMSD patients' health outcomes. We possess the intellectual capacity to understand violence, understand crime, understand the legal component. We have all these things in our arsenal to understand all that. And we could develop interventions. We could develop educational programs in the school system, addressing the barriers, because they could see them there. And, you know, and and a lot of victims go to school. They go to school and they get traffic after school. A lot of them do. A lot of them are trafficked through familial. So if you look at the interpersonal barriers, ding, 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 it should alert you to, this, to say something is going on here. 
right? Sometimes we, you know, we hear that, oh, that child is mild behaved, you know, they don't behave right, they answer, they're acting out. But if we, if you remove that kind of, the saying like that bad behavior and actually look at the root, you could see that their trauma is what's coming up. And that's what they're exhibiting because they don't have the capabilities to understand everything that goes on because of the neuroplasticity of the brain and everything, all the hormones that are happening for poor kids during adolescence. This is what ha- what's happening to them. Yeah. And so, I could imagine the maze would be useful to many professions. So how do people get a hold of the article or did you have an article or report associated? How do so, people get a hold of it? Okay. So I, I presented at the Ohio summit for Senator Fetter this uh, last month and um, I submitted the maze to be um, uh, in a manuscript uh, to the Journal of Human Trafficking. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it gets accepted for publication and that's where the maze, but they could also get in touch with me um, through, you know, through um, UToledo. What's your email so that in case they don't want to wait for the article, they're excited, they want to talk to you now about it. How how do they get (laughs) a hold of you? Okay, so my email at UToledo is rosario.sanchez at utoledo.edu. R-O-S-A-R-I-O dot Sanchez, S-A-N-C-H-E-Z at utoledo.edu. That was Dr. Rosario Sanchez. And you can just hear the passion in the work that she does. What I love the most is that she described research, research. And when I teach my students at the university, the last thing they want to talk about is research. (laughs) It seems dry. It seems boring. There's a lot of numbers and stats and computer manipulations going on and research designs. And you got to learn all the rules for why this becomes first and what the name of it is and all this ridiculousness. And it's all necessary because it leads to the exciting work like Dr. Sanchez is involved in. I love qualitative research. And that's what she's describing to you. You know, sometimes we think about research, all we think about is statistics and surveys and, but qualitative research, you get to ask an open-ended question and listen and just receive all of the gifts and the wisdom so that you understand that person's lived experience. You're not giving them a survey, making them fit into a nice little box. You're allowing them to tell you their life experience, which could be different than anybody else's life experience. But then over time, you start to see themes. So you start to analyze words and sentences and put them in categories and connect those categories together to build themes. And then the picture of a collective group's experience starts to emerge. Research is exciting. I know, I know, it's hard to believe. But you just heard Dr. Sanchez describe in a passionate way why we need to be very careful, why we need to be trauma-informed, why what we say, what we do, how we approach people can encourage or discourage. You understand a little more 
about someone's lived experience because they sat down, they spent time and they described over and over. And then she analyzed the data, took it back to the participants and said, is this the correct experience? So we're not coming out with numbers. There's 38% of this and 79% of that. How much? No, no. Qualitative research is about the experience. Can I capture the experience and then describe it back to you? Is this the experience? And once we understand the experience, that helps us to provide better services because we know how we should be approaching and not approaching. We know what the issues are. We know what the concerns are. We know how to encourage or discourage or how to identify the strengths of that person and use those strengths to help them get to the next level. And so qualitative research is just where it's at. But when you think about research, now that you've heard a little bit about how some research, you know, don't just close your ears off and say, I never want to be a researcher. I never want to get my PhD. I never want to be an academic because it can be interesting, exciting, but most importantly, so valuable that we understand in our heart and in our mind what somebody's lived experience will never fully understand, but we get an idea so that we can better be empathetic to use that empathy that we have to understand someone's experience. Last thing I'll say is she mentioned two things. She mentioned ACEs really quick, and that is the Adverse Childhood Experiences um, screening tool that will tell you how much trauma you've had in your life. So if you look up ACEs, just like an ACE in a deck of cards, you can take this 10 uh, question screening tool And it will tell you um, what your ACE score is. And then based on that, you can look up, hey, ACE score of four, what does that mean? And it will tell you all kinds of things about, based on your trauma, what you're at risk of in the future. Um, So it's interesting. And she also mentioned DMST, I should say, domestic minor sex trafficking. So just in case somebody's out there and may not understand when we talked about DMST. So basically, research is cool. What she found out and what she shared with us is that we should be great listeners. We should be empathetic. And we should try and understand with our best listening ear, with our best empathetic heart, someone else's experience so that we can offer the best and the quality services to build that trust, to build that relationship and do the best job that we can do. So thankful, thankful that Rosario came on and reminded us of the need to bring our best to the table, to work every single day so that we can help in any way that we can. Until next time, the fight continues. Let's not just do something Let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.